do, give me five, give me that which I desire. Hey everybody, and welcome to episode 37 of Metallicast, the Metallica podcast. I'm your host and fellow Metallica fan. My name is Brandon. Well, better late than never. At the end of August, about a week before SM2 came out, I was able to speak to SM2 conductor Edwin Outwater for Metal Talk TV on MetalTalk.net. This was before my live stream with Scott Pingle, which is already out as a podcast. And of course, like I just said, out before the release of SM2. But I'm just getting around to releasing the audio as a podcast. I'm sure some of you out there in the Metallicast Munisha have already watched the interview. But for those of you who have not yet checked it out, I hope you enjoy our conversation, even if it's, you know, a few weeks behind schedule. What can I say? Somehow, someway, this podcast has become very busy for me, and I say that in the best way possible. So instead of releasing it as a standalone new episode, I kind of am throwing it out as a second new episode for the week. So for those of you who have already heard it, it's just sort of a bonus. And for those of you who have not yet heard it, surprise, you got a new one to check out. But Edwin goes into detail about his musical upbringing, conducting itself, the art form of conducting, if you will, and of course, the SM2 project, along with so much more. I hope you enjoy it. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Edwin Outwater. Hey everybody, welcome to Metal Talk TV. My name is Brandon. I am really excited about our guest this episode. He is a world-renowned conductor that led the San Francisco Symphony Orchestra at SNM2, the recent collaboration with Metallica that will be released everywhere this Friday, August 28th. Please welcome to Metal Talk TV, Edwin Outwater. Edwin, how are you? Hey, good. How are you? I am very good. Thank you so much for agreeing to come on Metal Talk TV. It's a real pleasure to have you. Nice to be here. Can't believe it's this Friday. This record, wow! I know it. it it's fine because it's for us Metallica fans. It you know it was quickly in movie theaters, and then we were waiting and waiting, waiting. But now all of a sudden it's here, and it's gone by really fast. The last month or two with the little snippets that have been uh, released by the band and whatnot. Yeah, I hope you enjoy it. It's I, I'm pretty excited about what they've come up with in this uh, re-edited version, and you know the audio obviously will be more worked out after you know putting a movie out in one month was was, was pretty amazing <laughs> what they did but we've done a lot more since then well i know everybody's really excited to hear it um from what i have heard it sounds fantastic i am curious though to kind of travel back in time with mm -hmm. you for a little bit when your musical journey began and how you discovered that you wanted to be a conductor oh i i had a interesting musical journey i guess i was um i grew up in la uh and my grandmother worked for ella fitzgerald for a long time and my father worked for warner records um in the engineering kind of side of things and so i was around kind of rock and roll and jazz more than classical 
but around age 13, I got a bass in my hands through the public schools there and a great teacher. And then I became obsessed with classical music. And uh, through high school, I was playing, you know, uh, orchestral bass quite a bit. Uh, had an electric bass, but never found the right, like, group of friends to start a band with. Uh, <laughs> it was an idea. And, uh, and, and by the time I got to university, um, I had gotten the conducting bug and was trying to, you know, get groups of friends together and, and try, you know, try things out. But for me, you know, conductors are like puzzle solvers. They love all the, the different aspects and the multitasking. And I kind of realized at a young age, like my brain kind of worked that way. So I was, I was drawn to it. But it's, it's very presumptuous to be a conductor, as you know. It's a, it's a stand <laughs> on the box and wave your arms. Well, you know, it's funny you say that because um, I am a graduate of uh, music college. I went to Berkeley in Boston, Massachusetts. Right. And I only said because my understanding of what conducting was, I found when I got there and took conducting courses was very preliminary. Like I sort of had this notion that the, you know, a conductor is any musician who just stands and kind of, you know, keeps time, gives some cues. But when you actually study, there's a, you realize very quickly, there's a real art form to doing it very well. And it's a, kind of a separate skill set. Um, and I'm curious how you sort of, uh, how you see your role as a conductor and how you sort of, uh, uh, you know, in, in terms of both rehearsals and performances um, and how you approach it. Well, conducting has two parts. There's definitely the coaching and direct, you know, very similar to a stage director or, or a coach of a sports team that you organize everything, you run the rehearsals, you make a lot of the artistic decisions on behalf of the group. Um, the difference with conduct, so that's, that's one part of conducting training is just having the ears and the kind of ability to fix things, you know, in an orchestra or, or to mold the sound the way you want in rehearsal. But then the other aspect, obviously, is the physical aspect, because unlike a sports coach or a, or a stage director, you don't walk on stage, you know, those guys don't walk on stage or on the field with their players. They sit on the sidelines, whereas the conductor is up there in the performance. So right. that's when all the hand stuff becomes very important, because a good orchestra can read very, very subtle signals from you, you know, in your hands. And... Uh, and that can cause spontaneous things to happen or think, you know, the performance to go in a different direction than the rehearsals did. And so the two aspects are, are that behind the scenes aspect and then the, the technical, you know, and just like any instrument, there's kind of a technique of conducting and moving your hands and making things kind of come alive that way. Right. And I remember the thing that stood out to me the most when it was really first introduced to me was how expressive it is. It has to be just as expressive as picking up an instrument and uh, making music with that with, you know, you want to, it was taught to me, like, if you're just sort of standing there and doing this, you, you want to, you know, if it's loud, you want it to really show with your arms and your body. Yeah. And it's, you know, the whole body language aspect of it was the part that really stood out to me when I first started studying it myself. Definitely. And like, I'm, you know, for me, I'm trying to get every possible expression in the physical, you know, work. And because right. frankly, orchestras hate stopping. Just like in a band <laughs> practice or whatever, you don't want to stop. You don't want to like keep talking and talking. You want to play and work it out with as few words as possible. So the, so the, the gestures are really you know, almost your survival mechanism as a conductor. 
Yeah. You don't want to stop. <laughs> hundred people can get bored really fast with that. Uh, yeah, I remember that from my classes. You know, if the, the baton stopped, the group was instructed to stop, you know. And yeah. <laughs> um, excellent. So I'm curious, you mentioned you were listening to some rock and jazz and then got into classical. Who were some of your favorite artists growing up? What what really led you down um, for both rock, jazz, and then what ultimately pulled you in for classical? Um, I think musically, I was kind of a lucky, like, you know, I'm almost, I'm 49, but because my father worked for a record company, I, I was kind of a Spotify kid, you know, or a YouTube kid before that. <laughs> so I could basically listen to music for free. So it was kind of uh, early on, I remember I asked for a, I liked kind of hard rock and like, like Van Halen and Zeppelin. And I would, those were the records I was asking to be uh, brought home to me. Um, right. Then I got, you know, I went to a concert around 10 and I asked my dad what, you know, I wanted to go to a rock concert. He said, what do you want to see? I, I said, I don't know. Like, what's good? He said, well, <laughs> you want to see like blood and explosions and snakes? And I was like, yeah, I'll see that. And so uh, he took me to Alice Cooper at the Greek theater in LA, which is awesome. And, and then as you know, I kept exploring and exploring music and I became kind of, I got into punk and new wave, like the more stripped down stuff. Uh, right. Very 80s kid from from West LA. It's not, <laughs> you know, it's kind of what a lot of us listen to over there. Right. I'm the and um, so everything from like Devo to like Black Flag or you know X or Talking Heads and things like that. Kind of a mix of that, kind of K rock from the 80s world. Right. And then also into Bowie and into kind of. I just went deeper and deeper into weirder and stranger music, basically. Uh, Zappa, all of that. Uh, just because I could keep hearing it. And then classical music, I picked up something and jazz the whole time. I mean, I was going to see Ella or Oscar Peterson or, you know, all these kind of, especially older generation jazz acts, but sometimes new ones. And then classical music, I just, at 14 or 13, I picked up a cassette tape of a Mozart symphony and somehow the music made sense to me in a way that it hadn't up until that point. So I started to hear what it was trying to do, but it took a long time for me, you know, considering mm -hmm. like, I think my parents wanted me to listen to more classical when I was younger and I kind of resisted, but then it was a really, it was a revelation. It's like, Oh, that's what that music means, you know, <laughs> right. and that's why it's powerful and that's why it's hard to do. And that's, you know, it kind of right. clicked. And then I became really obsessed and that was when I really started getting good. Um, at the bass and at the instrument at the same time. So it kind of all, it's funny how music works. It, it just all clicks together in weird ways, biologically or mentally or nature, nurture, who knows, you know, what you're exposed to and, and how it all adds up into like what you love or what you love to do. Totally. I had my parents visiting me not that long ago and I was playing music and they're like, are you like playing this because we're here? Or I'm like, like, no, this is just like a, my music i'm just like this is all the stuff we listen to i was like well i heard it growing up i i you know and at the time i was you know metallica megadeth but then you go back and you sort of rediscover all the songs and kind of learn to love it in your own way you know yeah yeah i mean and, you know most open-minded listeners don't really care about genre that much they have may have a right. music that means a lot to them based on what they heard growing up or, you know, that were emotional or pivotal experiences. But, you know, for most of us, we're exposed to so much music now that we can pretty easily venture into other genres, you know, without 
sweating it or worrying about it. And there's kind of less, I don't know, there's less, I have to like this music and not that. It doesn't seem to be, yeah. it used to be more, right? Um, yeah. But now it's less, I think. I, I agree with that. And there are so many artists now who just sort of bridge the gaps between all these different genres because, you know, they might experiment with, you know, world music or rock, or it's just sort of a hodgepodge of styles now, which I think is really great. Yeah. I mean, I like, li I'm a very like wide, you know, listener and love living in all sorts of worlds and kind of, I'm a kind of musician that can jump into, you know, from a classical musician into a Metallica situation. And uh, I, <laughs> I, I do love that being able to do that. It's like, it's so fun. And, you know, for me, I don't pretend to be a rock musician or a jazz musician. I'm just a fan and I love it. I mean, I can play along with it, but you know, I'm a classical musician who can work with those people. You know? <laughs> I'm I mean, that's where my skill is as a musician is classical, but you know, right. everything kind of blends and that can add a lot to a rock experience and vice versa. Sure. So when did Metallica first appear on your radar? Were you familiar with them, um, you know, growing up or it sort of, yeah. when did you just sort of, uh, kind do you of, remember hearing them? Yeah, MTV, you know, yeah. Black Album. And then I got more into kind of the earlier stuff. Like, I, I remember specifically listening to Master of Puppets and, and Justice for All um, up and down the California coastline because I was commuting from uh, <laughs> Santa Monica to Santa Barbara a lot and uh, driving hours and hours. I, I love those two records. I, I played them yeah. over and over again. Um, and then... You know, and I, I'd always been aware of Metallica. I saw the documentary when it came, first came out. Uh, and then, but you know, they're kind of a part of my diet, but not the main part. Um, right. And I, but they were like an exemplar of like that kind of rock that, and for me, there were times in my life, you know, when I needed that feeling, you know, and mm -hmm. Metallica definitely provided it. And um, then once I got into uh, the project, which was, March 2019, you know, since I was going to be kind of on stage with these guys, I really felt I needed to understand them much more deeply. And so spent months and months listening to lots of metal um, <laughs> and enjoying it, like from, yeah. you know, the other big four bands back to Black Sabbath and, and forward to like new, like, you know, neo thrash bands like Power Trip or things like that. And, <laughs> awesome. And, you know, some of the other like High on Fire and, and, uh, right. and kind of getting a, getting a kind of a, um, a feeling of the whole universe, how everything connects. And, and so I felt pretty knowledgeable and uh, pretty comfortable in the world by the time we got into the, into the process. And I, it was, a, you know, if you, if you've ever done that, like explored a new genre of music or one that you didn't know, and just like really went out. It's it's quite rewarding. You know, you learn a lot. Sure. And it's, it adds a lot to your life to know more about those bands. I totally agree. I love or, or choosing a specific artist and be like, I'm just going to do a deep dive into this yes. catalog and you sort of work your way through. I did that like a year or two ago with the Beach Boys. I was like, I'm just going to go back, listen to all the albums and, you know, just sort of like work your way through. And so so I, that is a journey, the Beach Boys. Oh my God. Uh, it was a journey. I mean, I, I, I maxed out uh, not long after the after pest sounds, I will admit. Yeah. But. <laughs> well, I love some of that. I love some of that late, late surfs up, and yeah. like oh, it's like so weird and you know 
burnout and existential and <laughs> but it's still so and it's very sad a lot of it uh, it's really yeah. great beach boys is incredible for me yeah, yeah i uh, absolutely agree i'm curious you know we uh was the original snm concert from 1999 on your radar at all was your familiarity a little bit yeah I, you know it, it, it was in my on my radar in a funny way i don't know if i'd seen the whole thing um, my friends in the San Francisco Symphony talked about it. You know, when I first came to the orchestra in 2001, it wasn't too long after SNM one. Right. And uh, it was very much in the conversations as an awesome experience the orchestra had. And people like some of my younger friends in the orchestra would play me their little oboe solo with the, with the <laughs> leaf clover, and they're like so proud of it. And and uh, so it was very like I knew about it, and often kind of the extent to which you know metallica is so powerful like you would or the fan base is so powerful you would kind of be in a cab or or i guess at that time you'd be in a cab later in uber and kind yeah. of talking about that you're a conductor and you know half the people would say you know a specific piece of classical music they liked or a specific composer like Beethoven or Mozart, but the other half of the people would say like <laughs> SM2 is like the coolest orchestral thing I've ever seen. You know about it. So like even in classical musician, it's like half of like, you know, what I ran into was a SM2 uh, thing. And I like just before the project, you know, I was in the Uber in LA and I was telling the Uber driver I was gonna you know, be a part of this. And he had, he already like got me out of the car and took a picture and like, you know. <laughs> so it, it was, awesome. it, but it really, you know, it impacted so many people. And that was why I was so excited because I'd heard, had all these like taxi cab conversations with people and knew yeah. kind of how the project had reached people, like so many people in such a positive way. And so I was really honored to carry the torch, obviously. I think it was Lars who recently said it, it was probably the interview they recently did in the Howard Stern show. Mm -hmm. He was talking about how the first go around, they were the younger guys. And now this go around, they were the older guys. And uh, there are so many more members of the orchestra who were like, yeah, I grew up listening to Metallica. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, not least of which, you know, Scott Pingle, who played that amazing bass solo of Anesthesia, I mean, was a real fan and like, you know, spent so many hours you know, getting that, you know, electric bass set up right and the pedals and learning, you know, yeah. anesthesia and adding it. So that kind of affection is, there are definitely plenty of Metallica fans in the San Francisco Symphony. And 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 I would say beyond that, even the, you know, some of them have played it before, played both shows. They all, you know, and the band is so respectful and appreciative of the orchestra and, um, so it was it's such a positive experience and, and, and an unusual experience for orchestral musicians to be rock stars. I mean, they do tour the world. I mean, right. San Francisco yeah. Symphony goes on tour to Europe or Asia all the time and, and they get incredible ovations, you know, playing with Michael Tilson Thomas and and but it's just, you know, it's different. Rock right. energy is different. Well, that brings up a couple questions I have for you. It's funny you mentioned Scott because he's actually going to be a part of a uh, metal talk in my podcast, Metallicast. We're going to co-host a live stream this Friday, the 28th. Oh, great. And uh, so Scott's going to be on along with Doug Ryeth, the principal harpist of the orchestra. Yes. So we're going to be doing a live chat on Facebook and YouTube and the audio will come out on my podcast, Metallicast, after the fact. Uh, so I was actually going to 
ask you um, a couple related questions to what you're saying, including sort of how did some of these uh, pieces come to be? I'm, I'm, it, the, for me as a fan, uh, the first half of the show is great, but that second act for me personally, I just truly love with the, the experimentation with the classical pieces and then going into the arrangement of the Unforgiven Three, where it's all orchestra except for mm -hmm. James on vocals. And then of course, you mentioned Scott doing the solo for anesthesia pulling teeth. So I was just sort of curious where some of those things came to be. For example, the Scythian Suite and the Iron Foundry, the classical pieces that were performed. Whose sort of brainchild was that and how did the band re react to doing that? I think the initial SNM2 creative conversations took place between Lars and Michael Tilson Thomas. Um, and, and I think had he not had heart surgery that summer, he might've had a bigger creative role in the show, Michael. Yeah. Um, and, and even so, that was kind of his zone. That, but one thing they agreed on uh, in the initial conversations before I was even brought on board is that instead of just you know playing Metallica songs, both Michael and Lars wanted the orchestra to shine more, to have something to play on its own, to involve the players playing Metallica songs and to flip the, the you know, flip, kind of go do the opposite of what we were doing mostly that day, which is the orchestra learning Metallica songs. There was the kind of the musical challenge for Metallica to learn one classical song. Right. Um, in the midst of it, which was the uh, Iron Foundry. And so I think I knew that that was, and you know, soon after when I was kind of put essentially in charge of the rest of the project, you know, from the symphony side, because uh, Michael was going through other stuff and working on other stuff and was actually having a planned heart surgery that, that summer. Um, I kind of went and recruited people, uh, you know, from the, and Scott, like the minute he heard, there was an email to the orchestra and the minute that that email went out, Scott was like texting me about, you know, what he was working on. So very eager, I was like, well, this will be easy, you know. And um, and I would say the band is, you know, they, they loved it. I mean, he auditioned for them, he'll tell you about it, but in, in HQ and it was, I was sitting there, just they're all like in a small circle, like when yeah. you put in, you know, listening to him play. And it was very emotional, obviously, for the band to hear right. that. You know, sure. for, for, you know, all the reasons you, all the fans know and about Cliff Burton and, and uh, it was really one of the highlights. But I think that was partly my job was to find um, orchestra pieces and orchestra musicians. Scott was the one that kind of came through um, in the concert, obviously. And then I think Michael and I discussed which pieces um, to choose. So there were several pieces. You could have done a bit of Ride of the Valkyries, you know, the Apocalypse Now. Right. You could have done uh, the second movie of Shostakovich's 10th Symphony, which is a really fast four minute, um, you know, ripper for orchestra. Uh, and we chose City and Suite because it's short, it's four minutes, and it's like, it is very heavy. Like it's famously yeah. brutal and heavy and, and kind of uh, perfect. So I think Michael and I were, were kind of, uh, he, he came up with some ideas and we kind of batted them back and forth between us. And then Iron Foundry is a piece that Michael kind of discovered and he always busts out as an encore. It's, it's a really weird piece and I fell, fell in love with it like the minute he introduced me to it. And so I don't know, it's probably his idea and, and 
I said, oh, the Iron Foundry would be great because it kind of repeats. Right. You know, it's kind of almost like a rock. It has riffs and it repeats for, yeah. for an amount of time. And so the band can kind of learn it quickly and, and, sure. and it kind of works in that way, in a, in a rock song kind of way. So it's not a famous piece of music. It's a really obscure yeah. piece of classical music. It's totally niche and most classical <laughs> musicians don't know it. And so uh, I, I think the irony now is, of course, that it's it's mega famous or <laughs> when, when, when everything comes out on Friday. I was not overly familiar with either of those pieces at the time, uh, but I remember hearing the skipping suite and, you know, just like you said, I was like, if this was arranged for guitar, bass, drums, this is a Metallica song. Yeah, exactly. So we, we felt that way. And... And Scythian Suite is not, I mean, it's by Prokofiev, it's a much more famous composer, but it's not a super popular piece either. Yeah. So, you know, these are like deep cuts of classical music, <laughs> which, is, which made it even more fun, I think. You know, I, right. thought, I thought it would have been cheesy to do da 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 I mean, maybe they would have liked it, but <laughs> Well, I'm sure it was a bigger thrill for the orchestra members to play something that perhaps they had not played before, or at least not often. Yeah, well, they played it because it's, but I think, yeah, it was it was cool for them to play it in an arena. And also, yeah. frankly, we had to choose pieces that worked in that weird, um, that weird formation that we were sitting in, in, in a circle, which is not how orchestras sit at all. And so, Scythian right. Suite's not super fast, yeah. um, which will make it, which made it easier for it to hold it together, considering we were so spaced so weirdly apart from each other on that stage. I mean, that was definitely like the practical consideration. Which I was going to ask you about just in general, because you'd mentioned before the the audience there is obviously a little louder than your typical symphony performance. And you have the unique setup of, uh, you know, the circular setup with the, um, with the band and the orchestra. So how do you prepare for that, um, for what you need to do in terms of, dealing with perhaps extra audience noise and just a different layout. I mean, you don't, that, that was the adventure. You don't know until you do it. I mean, yeah. I, I had in-ears, um, you know, and yeah. we had a lot of rehearsal time um, with the, in that setup, we had three rehearsals in the circular setup before. So, and two were in the Cow Palace, which is another arena in San Francisco. So we actually played in this arena for two days, uh, before we went over to the Chase Center. And they, so they tore, they built the setup, tore it down and built it back up, which is kind of amazing. And, but it made, it made us so comfortable that we had like lived in that and kind of troubleshot various audio and visual problems that that circular right. arrangement created. So, you know, almost everyone could see me from the podium, but a few could not. And then we had small TV screens, you know, in front of the percussion particularly. Yeah. Uh, if you look in carefully in the movie, you'll see little screens of me you know, <laughs> conducting the people who can't see me directly. It's incredible the amount of logistics that goes into, uh, you know, what was ultimately a two-day performance. Yeah. Um, well, we knew it would last a long time. and Right, sure. I, I was in very close contact with Greg Fiddleman as we put the, put the thing together and you know, the two of us live were making sure everyone was comfortable. And, and for me, my job, a lot of it is psychological for both the band and the orchestra to make everyone feel, okay, it's cool. Like, we're good. You know, yeah. it's going to be fine. If there's a problem, we'll fix it. Um, 
for the orchestra, we're not going to blow your ears out. We have like hearing protection and we're going to warn you, you know, if we turn the sound up so you're not, because they're not used to that. Uh, and, and frankly, they're less protective than Metallica is with the, they don't, you know, most of the musicians did not have in-ears. They had earplugs and then like one headphone, you know, yeah. getting, so it was, it was, it was challenging for them for sure. Wow. I'm curious what, now that you have had some time to live with this project, what, what do you look back on and what was sort of like the personal highlight for you from SNM2? I don't know, man. It was, <laughs> it was such a long, it was putting it together really. And, and uh, just uh, imagining it and seeing it come to life. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, just the original conversations we had about the stage setup, trying to figure it out. Um, like I made one, I made one uh, kind of stage design suggestion to shrink the Metallica circle in the middle where they play and put the pathways out, you know, which, right. which allowed the players to see each other better. And that was, I mean, I was so proud of that because that like one decision made the whole thing work a hundred times better. And so it was like everything from like engineering to song selection to, uh, you know, moments in the concert, like, uh, just reacting to the crowd, like doing iconic pieces like No Leaf or uh, or One, you know, which the SNM version is so beautiful. And yeah, it was, mm-hmm. it was just the whole thing was a, a career highlight. It, and the team was it was such a positive experience. Everyone was so um, supportive and, and out for the adventure. And the band was great. The Metallica crew, which is vast, they're like some of the most talented people you can imagine. I mean, they just, put, and it feels like a family, like over on their side and our side. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah it got, it got, it, it got the way everyone got along. It just went really well. It was, and you hear it. I mean, it's reflected in the kind of the final product that everyone is just kind of going for it in a way that's really exciting. Like the yeah. vibes were really good, you know, on stage. I, I think you can hear from what I have heard from SM2, there's, a lot of energy and what I've liked about the recordings I've heard is that I think it really captures um, the band live despite the uh, uh, with the with the orchestra is just just so much energy coming off every musician on that stage it sounds really lively and fun yeah I mean I would just kind of some of those songs are are kind of breathtaking they just have that little edge that live edge that a little bit leaning forward and pushing ahead a little bit you know we were, we were not on a click, I mean, really at all for most, I mean, there was maybe a starting click and then it went the way it went. And yeah. so it's that kind of live excitement is, is there. And when the orchestras can, you know, go faster or go slower or adjust the tempo. I mean, we play opera. Yeah. We, we're, we're one of the miracles about orchestras is, is you know, as a hundred people, we can switch tempos on a dime or adjust do these subtle adjustments. Sure. That band could do. Like if we feel it kind of going, we'll go. And uh, and that, I think that, that also was something I knew how to do with the orchestra and we trusted just to, you know, just to follow and to go on the roller coaster ride. And I think that came out really, really well in the recording. I'm curious, besides SNM2, what is a recent project of yours that you're really proud of that um, you would love for people watching Metal Talk or listening on Metallicast to check out? I've done, oh man. I, don't I know like, you've done so much. Yeah, Maybe something from the last year. The last year, well, there's COVID. So I got, 
<laughs> Sad uh, example, maybe from the last two years. <laughs> I mean, some really fun projects is often I am pulled into these um, these uh, kind of really big projects that are multidisciplinary. So one thing at the Kennedy Center, I worked with the soprano Renee Fleming on a whole thing about uh, sound health, like about neuroscience and uh, oh, wow. music and just a, with a whole amazing group of, of musicians. Uh, I also helped uh, Wynton Marsalis and his uh, jazz at Lincoln Center Orchestra create a jazz version of pictures and exhibition, yeah. uh, which we did in Chicago, which was just unbelievable. Um, and all his guys in his band are composers, you know, great yeah. jazz. And so each, each of his band members composed a, a jazz version of pictures and he alternated. So, I kind of helped produce that. So I love these um, producing projects. Um, right this week, I'm in Los Angeles. I'm actually working with Kirk um, on a project that we had planned that was uh, postponed by the pandemic, but we both love uh, horror, horror movies. You know, oh, and, nice, you know, yeah. We, so we kind of bonded over that. So we had had a concert planned uh, with the Vancouver Symphony, which was like a horror orchestra concert with like all sorts of Oh, wow, that sounds things. awesome. And so we're recording whatever what it'll happen at some point but we're recording yeah. this week that kind of thing so this well, is it, a metallica week for me as well <laughs> it's funny because i was you know to to tie in with your you know your love for kind of bigger projects i was recently i saw this random video online of ben Foltz where oh, yeah. he uh basically improvises a song for orchestra on 10 minutes not even realizing that until i was watching the video that i was like oh that's it without water. Yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> I work with Ben a lot, actually. I love Ben. He's um Yeah. He he loves orchestras as well and he'll tour just like piano and orchestra and drummer and um I'm one of his conductors he likes working with. So and and Ben's always a joy. So whenever you kind of if he calls, I'll come and do the show. It's 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 really fun. Um and he he is really creative. He does that orchestra improv thing and he has a series at the Kennedy Center that kind of combines you know, all these different kind of people with classical musicians. So he's doing a lot of work on that kind of hybrid front as well. Awesome. And awesome. I have, I have this favorite horror movie. For well, God, it's it's like so many. I'm I'm like I save all the tough questions for the end. So <laughs> I don't know if it's a horror movie. I love this movie called Night of the Hunter, um, which is with Robert Mitchum, and it's about a homicidal preacher who chases these kids who kills the kids parents and then chases them through the through the cell wow. and it's like it's 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 a kind of a almost like those um german expressionist like uh fritz yeah. lang movies you know and it's it's but it's really american it was directed by charles lawton who was a great actor um, his only movie music is is incredible um it's it's really to me probably my favorite movie and i it is essentially a horror movie i was looking uh, in preparation for this interview i was looking at uh you know what sort of what you've done with the san francisco symphony especially um and one thing that stood out to me that seems like a really unique event was uh and i believe it's been recurring for a few years obviously pre-pandemic was the holiday gaiety oh, yeah. uh, event well can you explain what that is about it seems like a really unique event well, someone had asked me to do a holiday concert with uh, with uh, for adults, essentially. 
Yeah. You know, because you always, all the holiday comes, you know, you bring your kids. Like, what about the people without kids? And like, yeah. you know, and they like. They out Santa Claus again. And yeah, like the other thing. <laughs> so uh, there was a drag queen uh, called Peaches Christ in, in San Francisco who is kind of also is a horror icon, you know, mm. kind of like an Elvira drag person and cult films and stuff. And she and I kind of put together like a, we thought, what if we did a, a, a hol- you know, like those Andy Williams or like Judy Garland holiday shows from the fifties where someone like knocks at the door yeah. and comes through yeah. and like, so it was all like comedy written out. And, uh, and the guests would be like a lot of the RuPaul people like uh, Bob the drag queen would come in or Thorgy Thor who's a classical musician. And, and then like famous singer, we had Jane Lynch, you know, and Anna yeah. Gasteyer and, and all these great, and and Sandra Claus, we didn't have Santa Claus. <laughs> so, but it was like it's it, it was a we it was we were gonna do this was, was gonna be our fourth year, and in fact the concert, uh, the Halloween concert with Kirk was gonna have Peaches as well, and so <laughs> it was like it was based on those um, horror movies from the '60s where people walk walk in like they wear like those velvet. Yeah red jackets and like ascots and yeah. and then there would have been like a demon in the orchestra and then Kirk would have made a it was all gonna get kind of wild so horror awesome. and yeah it's it's a strange world it would have been like a horror drag classical concert well comedy, horror drag classical rock comedy yeah that's well, I'm really looking forward to seeing that when it sees the light of day in this uh in a post-pandemic world, whenever now that we want is. a tour. Do you see what you're missing now? You got to get back to work. Uh, which I guess leads me to my sort of final question. You know, with what what can we expect from you, sort of for 2020, 2021, with the pandemic going on? Are you doing a lot more like planning behind the scenes stuff, or? Yeah, we don't know when we're going to be back on stage. Yeah, um, well, the San Francisco Symphony. Uh, and it's so complicated because, and I don't think Metallica really knows either, you know, or yeah, anybody. Nobody knows. knows. And, yeah. Uh, in some parts of the world are ahead of other parts of the world. Uh, I, I recently was appointed music director of the San Francisco Conservatory, which is, you know, the music, big music school in San Francisco. And so we are going to be doing concerts in small groups and streaming awesome. them. So I think, for me, I don't just want to do a concert and film it and put it out there. I have some yeah. like filmmaking and creative ideas to kind of share that music in a different way since we're not live and interspersing with interviews or reflecting on the time we're living in. And so I think hopefully through that portal, you know, in a sense, the yeah. conservatory portal, you'll you'll see some new stuff for me. Um, but it's it's really, I mean, this week is we're in this recording project, but it's been months and months of, of no performing yeah um, a lot of these talks which i i really I, I love that the conversations are still going and not only you know snm related talks but just other classical appearances and and kind of palace so, but uh we're all kind of itching to be back uh, but the conservatory is at the moment my uh kind of online presence will be directed through there um in the months ahead awesome well i congratulations on all of your successes, uh, especially with your most recent projects and the conservatory. And uh, I know I, I am 
very much looking forward to seeing what lies ahead. And of course, I'm looking forward to getting the final product of SNM2 and watching the Blu-ray and all that good stuff and seeing the hearing that final mix. And it was just when I saw the movie theaters, it was really beautifully done and it just sounded phenomenal with everything uh, mixed together. So I'm really looking forward to seeing how they made it better. <laughs> you did. I mean, I spent a lot of time listening to it and, and uh, looking at it in yeah. January. And uh, I think it's, I think it's really, I think it's really a beautiful kind of commemoration of what happened there. Well, thank you so much for your time, Edwin. I really right, enjoyed this talk. All right, me too. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Fans not experts.